Welcome to the Film Look Podcast, where we break down films, learn from the pros, and try to become better filmmakers along the way. I'm Ricky the Boom, and I'm joined by K-Dog Cornflake. Oh, I like that. I like that. That sounds more like a Texas accent than a Virginia one. I can't do it, man. I can't do it. Anyway, uh, Robbie the Rooster's not here today, um, but we are going to be breaking down the filmmaking elements of 2017's Logan Lucky today, but um, we'll be doing that in a few minutes. First of all, I wanted to talk about, we, we, we always do this off air, don't we? Where we have a little chat about something and then we're like, oh, this is actually something we could talk about on the pod. Um, I've been smashing loads of films out lately on Amazon Prime and Netflix and all I had to do was change the way I thought about watching films. Yeah, you've been, you've, you've like text the group pretty much every night now, I think, consistently for the past few weeks saying, oh, I'm watching this. What do you think of it? Um, yeah. And you're, you're getting through some really, you know, some good classics there that you haven't seen. What was it like? You watched uh, Fight Club this week? and um, Well, I'd seen Fight Club before and I'd seen Seven and I'd already seen Panic Room. Getting a lot of Fincher films out. Uh, but I hadn't seen them in a while and I thought, I'll stick them on, see what they're like. Mate, Seven. I really liked Seven the first time I watched it, but uh, I honestly think it's one of the most, like, for what it is, one of the most beautifully horrific films ever created. I think, yeah, I'm surprised we haven't done it for the pod yet after all these years. I think one of us should pick that in the next few months Um, because, yeah, you're right. It's just, it's just, it's a creepy film, isn't it? It's a really creepy film. It's it's the dirtiest film I've ever seen. (laughs) It's so dirty. I have been smashing loads of films out. Loads that I just were on my list. And I was always like, I'll, I'll, I need to get round to it. I need to commit two hours or three hours or an hour and a half or whatever. But what I've been doing lately is just, it's the first thing on the list. And all I have to do is hit play. And if the film convinces me to watch to watch it after, you know, the first five or ten minutes, then I should be able to forget that I'm watching a film and just get through it. And uh, I've been doing that with a few films. And then I finally got to a film that I really disliked. And that was, color, was it, is it called Colour in Space? That it's a new Nick Cage, Nick, Nick Cage one, yeah. Yeah. Um, got it on Amazon Prime. I thought, it's wacky. Uh, let's give this a go. Um, I think I got about nine or ten minutes through it. And I was so unconvinced by the, other, by the filmmaker to watch this film. They'd, I just feel like they had no... They didn't want me to watch the movie. They didn't put anything interesting in the first 10 minutes for me to get caught up in it and be interested. I wasn't interested at all. I think they just relied on Nick Cage being in it because I haven't seen this film. Well, Nick Cage is not utilised. You know what it is? It's I might try and watch the rest of it because I feel like I could break down the first 10 minutes of that film and express all the reasons why I think it just doesn't work, why I think it's boring, why the characters are... If I remember from the trailer, it's a very beautiful film, right? It's got a lot of colours. The cinematography is, you know, on point. Or is that not? Um, was that just a trailer? Uh... I didn't get that far through okay. it. I got I got 10 minutes in. They were still setting it up. And they'd set up some expository dialogue. The film starts with a, with a shot of loads of trees and in a voiceover. A voiceover that's not compelling. I don't know. It just, it's like they watched The Revenant and then went, oh, let's make this let's make this sci-fi film, but there's nothing sci-fi about it, like, at all. Right, the thing is, right, good sci-fi film should start off with the sci-fi element, shouldn't it? Like, E.T. 
Like it's like we get this alien thing coming in and then we return to the normal family and then we see them come together. But it's just boring. Anyway, let's talk about a film that's not so boring. Um, I chose Logan Lucky, so um, play the music. Right, Logan Lucky is a 2017 film directed by Mr. Steven Soderbergh. Um, I picked this because I watched it in the past and just thought it was a really fun romp. I watched it again a couple of weeks ago um, I was actually going to suggest Seven, um, and then I was like, oh, I'll put Logan Lucky on, and then within 20 minutes I was writing stuff down to try and make a YouTube episode on it, and I thought, well, might as well break it down on the podcast and see what that's like first. Um, so that was my suggestion. I thought it was pretty wicked. I've seen it maybe three times now, um, and I would have to give it a solid 9 out of 10. Whoa. I think it's a great film. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's got a bit of everything. I think it's creative with how the scenes play out. We get a bit of comedy, action, drama. It certainly promises the premise and it does so using filmmaking tools in a fun and entertaining way. And I will, by the end of today, try and convince you that this film is a Western. Okay. And I'll prove that in this episode. It oozes traits of a great Wild West tale. So I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. K-Dog. As soon as I said that, you were like, oh, doggy. Yeah, I think that's too much. What do you think of Logan Lucky? Have you seen it before? Yeah, I saw it last year. I didn't see it when it came out, but I watched it last year. And um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I think it's a well-directed, you know, feel-good, enjoyable, fun time. You come away feeling happier than you did when you uh, before you watched the film. I really enjoy the characters. Um, they're very fun. I like the charisma of the characters as well. I like the tone of this film. It kind of doesn't take itself too seriously, does it? It's very light, breezy which makes it um, fun to watch. Like, um, yeah, not too, uh, not, not too uh, serious. Um, and however, I don't think this is a masterpiece on any level. It's, it's kind of funny, but not hilarious. And as far as heist films go, I think there's better versions. There's better heist films out there. You know, Steven Soderbergh directed Ocean's Eleven, didn't he? And I think that's a lot better than this film. Um, I think it meanders a bit in places particularly the, the last act of the film. Uh, and it didn't quite, you know, heist films, you want that, you know, that that reveal at the end. Uh, just, you mm. just want to be like, mm, you know, like it didn't, it didn't quite. That, an extra <laughs> twist. It didn't quite. Like it was a heist of, upon the heist of all time. <laughs> yeah, you, you, want, you want that kind of, that reveal to just, you know, reign over you. And it just, it didn't quite pack the same punch, I didn't think, as something like Ocean's Eleven. Not as satisfying. Not to say it wasn't good, yeah. it just wasn't, um, I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't get that warm fuzzy feeling in my belly. When, so um, you were expecting a little more heisty heist. Yeah, some more heists within heists. And, and uh, got a little bit more... <laughs> They were a bit more lax. But yeah, it's not to say that I didn't enjoy it. I really did. Um, I think I enjoyed it less, to be honest, because I was doing it for this podcast. And um, I right. couldn't just, I couldn't just, you know, uh, give in to the film and just enjoy it for what it was. I had to like watch it with critical eyes. And because of that, I think it's knocked a few points off for me. So um, to sum up, I'm going to give it six out of 10. Six out of 10? Yeah, You're six only going to give 10. it halfway? A little over halfway. I think it's better than average. <laughs> if average is five. Yeah, six, six out of ten is really one star, isn't it? Seven out of ten is two stars. 
8 out of 10 is 3 stars, 9 out of 10 is 4 stars, and 10 out of 10 is 5 stars. No, no. So anything less than 5 no, no. is six out, stars. 6 out of 10 is 3 stars. Yeah, but no one... No, a 6 out of 10 is not 3 stars. A 7 out of 10 is maybe like 2.5 stars. Right, in my, in my... Like if you were going to rate something 7 out of 10, you would be like, it's alright. <laughs> No, you I would say be like, oh, I really liked it. Seven out of ten. I don't know how you choose to watch films, but when I like don't know anything about a film, and I go on Rotten Tomatoes, and if it's below, it's below sixty, I don't watch it. Like what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you 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 don't just put it on and then decide. Did you did you look at the Rotten Tomatoes thing? No, I've got no idea. I've got no idea what the Rotten Tomatoes is for this. I think it's probably higher, right? It was it was well received, if I remember correctly. Uh, it's got a, um, a meta score of seventy eight, so it's decent. Seventy eight out of hundred. So what's that? Like an eight out of ten? Yeah, yeah. All right. Rotten Tomatoes. All right. The, the, the critics. Six out of 10. Yeah, the critics give it ninety two percent, and it's got seventy six. So what would you give it in terms of stars then? Three. Like three and a half stars? Three. I'm sticking with three. Three, three, three stars. stars. <laughs> Slightly above average. Slightly three above stars average. Pants though, isn't it? Like you would never put that on a poster. I'd recommend it to people if you want if you want, you know, just to just to uh you know, nothing too meaty. But a fun a fun two hours of your life, then I'd put it on. Well, I, I chose this because I was watching it again just because I wanted to get through my Netflix list on my Amazon Prime list or something. And there was a bunch of stuff that I just wanted to break down. There's some some stuff that I thought people could learn quite a bit with. Um and the first thing is in character development. So let's let's stop breaking down the story. Um the opening scene of this film, what I really like about it is um we open the film on this cute little scene between the dad and daughter. We understand straight away that these are kind of like the driving forces of this film. This is our main character. And this is his daughter. This is going to be our catalyst moment for something. So we, we see the relationship and it's the subtext of the whole story. So we're, we're telling the audience that this relationship is the purpose. And the whole point of the film is him providing for her. It seems like a seemingly pointless thing, but really we understand our protagonist is a loving father from the moment we see their, their relationship. He's raising his kid with a range of different feats. You know, he's not afraid to teach her typically masculine traits. Um, she knows which spanner is which. So we see the, you know, the backstory of their relationship already so far. And she's happy to sit there and spend some time with her dad when he's, you know, getting his hands mucky working on his car. But they're also talking about how she's going to be in this child beauty pageant. So we see that the other side of her life is with her mother and her stepdad and family, the other family. And they do things a little bit more traditionally um and uh, it got us thinking like this dialogue seems pointless it's not driving the plot forward but great dialogue never drives the plot forward great dialogue paints a picture about the characters and the actions of those people drive the plot forward i just thought it was a really good opening scene to establish our main character and understand what it is that he's un understand the reasons why these characters will eventually take on these actions in the film. What did you think of the opening scene? So you're right. It's a very character driven film, isn't it? Like you stay 
watching this because you enjoy the kind of quirkiness and the uniqueness of the characters. And there are a lot of long scenes, I would argue sometimes too long, where nothing significant really happens plot-wise, but you do, like you say, get to know who these characters are and how they interact with each other. But you said that you kind of you get his motivation from this scene and I'm going to argue that you don't get this motivation and I think that's my biggest flaw with the film is that I didn't feel emotionally invested in the heist because for me it didn't seem like there was a big enough reason for them to to do the heist in the first place like the stakes yeah. the stakes went high enough um obviously right. yeah you, you get that first scene with him and his daughter right and then I think the next scene or like you know one of the first ones you get him getting fired from work um and so he loses his job and you understand that he really needs money and he gets fired because he has a limp right and mm -hmm. it doesn't say this explicitly but it implies that this is a regular occurrence for him because he's had to lie about it and and you, you, yeah they need money because everyone needs money but there's nothing to suggest that he can't just get another job <laughs> get another job yeah <laughs> like uh, now, you, now that you say it it's like the whole thing with screenwriting is that they call it status equals death. So the reason why Luke Skywalker has to go join the Rebel Alliance and go with Han Solo in the Millennium Falcon is because if he stays, the stormtroopers are going to kill him. Yeah. And that goes for like everything. It's like, if I stay here in my ordinary world, someone will die or something really bad will happen. But yeah, he gets sacked. You do feel his you, choices. You obviously try and find another job, or I'm going to rob somewhere. Yeah, like, <laughs> and he seems to jump to robbing somewhere very quickly. a lot sooner. But does he not need more money because things like the argument with the ex-wife and things like that? And he's like, "Oh, I need a lawyer." Yeah, but see, yeah, you're right. I, I would have liked to see more hardship. Um, you know, Aladdin steals the bread because he's hungry right and and it, you, but, but the, the the scene that he had with his wife right where he goes to the house that's just just after he's been fired and he doesn't tell her um to me they seem to have a good relationship with his family like his ex-family like he kind of he kind of gets on with his ex-wife not great but he kind of gets on with his husband they're quite surface level amicable right um, which is the best they're civil with each other civil which is the best you can hope for and like a you know when you share a child and you're getting divorced um but there doesn't seem to be any it wasn't like rob a bank or you're never seeing your daughter again it's like she she even said you can come to, you can cross the state line if you want like she's been a bit of a dick but she's not like taking his kid away from him yeah um but I just didn't feel like there was anything to get angry about, you know? I didn't want to, like, oh, yeah, go, you know, rob that bank or rob, yeah, steal that money. Um, Do you think with these characters being set up as a little bit more simple and, you know, com comical and maybe a little bit dim, you know, we get that scene later on where it's like, oh, you Logan guy, I'm not going to do the accent, <laughs> you Logan boys aren't as daft as people say and they're like, people say that about us yeah. both at the same time. I, yeah. Do you think that the fact that we have this sort of no real stakes, just daft enough that they'll try it? Yeah. Like, is it is it far-fetched that this character would do this or is it just you wanted a little bit more heat to the stakes so you would feel 
more like you were going to be rooting for them. I guess, yeah. I, it does feed into the tone of it, doesn't it? Because it's, it's kind of light and silly and these characters are a bit hapless and dim, you know, and it might just be a conclusion that they jump to without any sort of, uh, you know, logic to get in there. They're like, all right. Maybe the character saw the light at the end of the tunnel. No, that's that's a metaphor for dying. Maybe he saw, you know, the, uh, the idol in the background, so the, the diamond glimmering. And he's like, right, I need money and I know I can steal money because we've done it before. Backstory, brother went to prison for it. Uh, and he's, he, he gets given this gift of being able to see these, the pneumatic tubes. Is it pneumatic? Yeah. The, yeah. The, the tubes, the money tubes, we'll call them the money tubes. Um, and he just jumps on that straight away because it's like he has an opportunity to do it. So he's a, He's an opportunist rather than, you know, he's not Danny Ocean. He's not like pure heist man. <laughs> but do you know that scene where they go to the carnival and they're going to get, uh, what's it called, Daniel Craig's brothers? And they, yeah. they say to him, we'll do it, but we need, we've got, we found God or whatever. We need a moral reason for doing this heist because uh, we're good guys now or something funny. It was, it was fun dialogue. Um, and then they give them this, yeah. this, kind of half-assed reason why it's okay to steal from these people. I wanted a genuine reason why this this those were the target, you know? Did you not think <laughs> that scene was so funny though? Because it was like, oh, we're good guys now. We're not going to do it. They're throwing toilet seats at this carnival. These other two daft guys come up to them and they're like, we want you to do this. Yeah, he's already told us. And, and then they have that moment where they... They crowd around each other for a, should we do it? Yeah. <laughs> that <was good. laughs> That's it. There was no decision making. They're just going to do it. So like in terms of like the tone of the characters and the way that it's all played out, it's at least consistent. Yeah. No, it, 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 you're right. Like maybe you wanted a bit more darkness. It's consistent. It. It's but, too lighthearted. But if you remember in Ocean's Eleven, I haven't seen it in a few years, but I remember like there was a reason that we're picking that bank. They needed the money, but there was a reason because it was owned by Andy Garcia, wasn't it? And Andy yeah. Garcia was having sex with George Clooney's wife, which we just it got revealed that was halfway through. So you okay. you suddenly have that moral injustice. You're like, oh, got that guy sleeping with his wife. Yeah, fucking steal all his money. Like, go for it. Yeah, and yeah. you you kind of root for the guy. So you have that primal feeling. For you root you for the guys. A, then. An internal feeling. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I didn't feel I did. There was nothing for me to get angry about here. Like, yeah, he lost his job, but you could get another one if you wanted. Um, do you think if you you know when you know Family Guy? Yeah. I'm just gonna call him Family Guy. Um do you think if he sort of owned the whole stadium, the speedway I'm just gonna call it NASCAR. I know it's not NASCAR, but it is because I'm English. The the car place, the car stadium. Do you think if he owned that and then it was like we're gonna rob him specifically because he was a dickhead to me brother? Yeah, like that would be because they were building that guy up as being an arse, right? Because they, I think it was a great scene when he came in the bar and then they kind of he was being an arse to them and then they just beat him up. Oh, they they set his car on fire, didn't they? If yeah. if after that scene they were like, oh, that guy owns NASCAR or whatever, let's go and let's go and teach him a lesson. Let's go and rob because him. we've got this, you know, we've got the wicked high skills to do that, and we're like, yeah, we're all in, we're all in now. Um, or like they were hesitant beforehand they were like oh I don't want to do that and then he comes in and then they have that altercation they're like oh yeah let's do it he's an ass. and then you see yeah. you're suddenly on their side and you're like oh right yeah he deserves a comeuppance in his life because he's an ass. and yeah I just didn't I didn't know I felt bad for the target I didn't feel bad for the target I just didn't feel anything for the target you know I just uh, 
<laughs> I had no emotional connection to the heist. So what you're saying is there was no bad guy in this film. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so, yeah. There's no antagonist, is there, really? No. If it's the ex-wife, she's not really much of an antagonist because it's not like she's going to take him away, take his daughter away completely. Yeah. They're pretty civil about it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's starting to make sense. And see where these plot holes are. <laughs> yeah, well, let's th- talk, let's I don't talk think, a little bit more about story. I, I was going to say, I don't think the plot... What? Sorry, I don't think the plot holes. I just don't think... Um, I just don't think the stakes are as big as they could be. That is all yeah. my issue, yeah. Yeah, and that's something that could have been fixed pretty easily. Like with a little plot point here or there. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's talk about him getting fired then. So I just want to talk about setup. So we have this opening scene where we establish who he is and he has a daughter and they're a loving family. Um, and then we've got this thing about the protagonist getting fired. This is <laughs> filmmaking cliche <laughs> for later. It's definitely a filmmaking cliche. At the beginning of the film, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to let you go. So within three minutes of this film, the protagonist is fired from his job. But I like the way that it was presented in order to sustain him as a character. So he's he's not getting fired because he really did anything wrong. He was fired because he worked regardless of his physical ailment. So it wasn't that he was a bad worker. He actually went above and beyond the Call of Duty for his daughter. And then it made us think, well, all right, so imagine you were writing this film and you needed him to get fired. The first thing would be like, well, he gets sacked because he's crap at his job, but being fired for being a bad worker wouldn't have worked as a plot point because later in the film, he proves that he's a good worker, i.e. he can plan and perform like a, a heist. So being fired for stealing something wouldn't have worked either because then we wouldn't get a sense that he's the hero. So do you think that him getting fired for an ailment that he was, you know, he was trying to hide it, but he he wants to work. He wasn't being a bad worker. Do you think that helped create this good guy mentality when you were watching it? Yeah, it was a good scene. Like it showed, it was, it showed a lot of character that scene and the way it happened, didn't it? Because even the boss, Jerry from Parks and Rec, um, he, yeah. Ga- Gary, <laughs> Gary, sorry, Jerry. yeah, Larry, Larry. Um, <laughs> he said, uh, you could tell he had remorse doing it. He didn't want to do it. He, he liked the guy. So you could see by even that, that kind of boss, uh, boss employee relationship that he's not a bad guy. He's a good guy. Um, cause normally yeah, in, the fact that they didn't paint him as a bad guy. Yeah. Like, oh, the boss who does the second. Sometimes in those scenes, which they are cliches, the boss is just a dick and he? he's just like, oh, get out and, and shouts expletives at him and it's kind of a tense um, relationship they have but this one you can, you, they tell they like each other and he's he feels remorse for doing this um, and yeah like you say it's very character it shows a lot of character because he's going he's working despite um, uh, his physical ailment I think this is one of the reasons I like this film so much is the characters like thinking about it now like yeah these these plot points that you've brought up I never even noticed them because I was so invested in these funky, weird characters and and the things that were going on. I've got really got this like alien and form of of like fun performances with like really wacky people. Um and you've got Adam Driver, Daniel Craig, and obviously Channing Tatum. And they've all played roles where they, you know, James Bond, when you think about it, he's a bit of a boring guy, isn't he? Yeah. And then like Channing Tatum many years ago was just known as like the, like maybe the jock or the dance guy and then Adam Driver I mean is a performance in what's the film he plays with 
Scarlett Johansson marriage, marriage, marriage story. story. That was good. Um, but you know, he's played the Hollywood villain before where his role, I mean, he was the best thing in the the Star Wars sequels. He's so good. Yeah. He they hasn't played kind of like generic type of people. And in this, they sort of definitely play like big over the top characters and it just made it so fun to watch. Yeah, they're just like hapless. They're kind of uncool, aren't they, as characters? Um, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. Virginia, that kind of really over-the-top Virginia accent. And uh, it's just fun to watch them interact with each other. And yeah, uh, yeah, there were some scenes, and I remember thinking, like, why am I watching this? Like, nothing's happening. <laughs> like, there's no plot element in this at all. But it, like yeah. you say, it was still fun because you're watching these characters just do funny accents and, and saying stupid deadpan things to each other. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that did make the, the viewing experience a lot funner. And I think it's all down to casting you, as well. I definitely, yeah. I think those three together, especially Channing Tatum and Adam, Adam Driver, I really felt like they were brothers throughout this. Yeah. I, I was so convinced. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about Adam Driver then, because throughout the film we've we've got the setup of our main guy Channing Tatum, and is it is it Channing Tatum or are you supposed to pronounce it Shanning like S H Channing like a like a shan like a chandelier is technically C H I'd say ch- Chan ch- Chan Channing. like Jackie like Chan. Jackie Channing Tatum <laughs> right right not not Shan like a shin <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think so. Right. Channing. Right. Okay. Anyway, Adam Driver. Um, the introduction of this character I thought was actually pretty wicked. Um, Clyde Logan, he's called. And we're introduced to Clyde Logan in the bar, first having a heated discussion with his brother. So we get this um, brotherly love sort of thing. Then Family Guy turns up and ridicules his arm. And, you know, he has a snappy room. He's like, I've got both my arms and what I actually lost was my hand and part of my forearm. So I have two arms. I thought that was clever. And that shuts Family Guy down straight away. Um, So then Family Guy, he's like, all right, well, I want you to make me this complex drink. And it's like, ooh, right. He's challenging what we're having this, this fight at this point. This is the first element of it being a Western. This is our standoff. And there's a lot of cinematography in that scene that is proper wild west in the saloon you know we get extreme close-ups on their eyes and that they're just watching and it's like oh what are they gonna do anyway so family guy asks for this complex drink and i thought this was a brilliant way to show um clyde as a brother who's similar to what's what's the other logan brother called Ch- Ch- Channing Tatum let's just call him Channing Tatum uh, jimmy yeah. uh, i'm just yeah i'll just call him by the actors yeah um Clyde, so Adam Driver takes his time. He's regimented. He's clean. He's certainly not taking any shit from anyone. And he proves he can make a drink just as well with one arm than most people can do with two arms. And I I just thought this provided me as an audience member with all of the character traits that makes him different from his brother. Like his brother is a bit more, bit more brash. Um, And it's all through action. There's no dialogue in that montage where he's making a drink. Um, yeah, and the fact that we get this standoff between these characters, I just thought was really cool. I love it in films. Um, it's a, a cliche as well, but 
when you've got one character that's you know having an altercation with someone else and without question you don't even know like without any context the other guy just jumps in and just protects him you know like he's on his side no matter what and and you shows that camaraderie between the brothers so when he comes out of the yeah. bathroom he's just like yeah you're i'm on your side here and then uh, yeah. even though they've had this argument it's like i've got your back yeah that's no it no what. matter what i've got your back and again that just shows a lot of character and they never break that character the whole film um and that it just shows that the kind of brotherly uh, relationship and love that they have and uh yeah. it's, it's so cool he's just yeah adam drivers is so cool and calm and collected isn't he and um how he just without question without thinking just goes and just uh what's what's it what do you call it when you bomb the um car what? he makes a malta of cocktail yeah. uh that was fun and it's like that we'd seen that before isn't it where it's like right well i'm gonna fight them in the meantime, you grab a bottle of the strongest whiskey or vodka yeah. or whatever it is, get a light off the guy outside, and um, I'll distract them. I'll get the crap kicked out of his in the bar when you go blow up the Yeah, car. again, it's it's like it uh, suggests a backstory that we obviously don't know or see, but we just, we know that these guys are close. They're tight. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Well, um, I've got a few more on writing. And there's, there's one element I, I really, really like. I'm probably going to make a YouTube episode on this. And it's um, something I'm calling the power shift or the turning point of a scene or essentially the uh, you've got character conflict goal and we get this change. There's always a change in a scene. Um, it's, uh, it's a lot of like screenwriting stuff where they talk about how every scene needs to be its own little short film where we've got a problem and a problem solution and we've always got two characters that are bumping heads and something else happens out of it it needs to progress in a certain way and it needs to change um and it was another thing that sort of gives me this feeling of like a standoff like a wild west western um and it's between so we've got melly is the sister logan and we've got moody who's the stepfather the get roy from roy, the office roy from the roy from the uh... Where does he work? The oh, where does he work in the office? In the warehouse. Right from the warehouse. The warehouse yeah, you were right from the warehouse. <laughs> yeah. Um, he rocks up in his brand new Ford Mustang, just as Melly is struggling with like a lot of bags out the boot of her car, and um, it it's it's like a seemingly pointless scene, but it just establishes these two characters, and I thought it was really cool. Uh, so Moody's objective in the scene is to try and raise his own self-esteem by hounding Melly in her piece of junk car. He's trying to impress her. And maybe he quite fancies her. You know, like there's an element of a possible backstory there where they're sort of like kind of related, but not really. And maybe he sort of fancies the pants of her. She's certainly not a bad looking girl. Um, But you know, this guy thinks he's all manly, loves NASCAR, he has a Ford cap, drives a Mustang. Uh, proper manly man has clear toxic masculinity issues um, and I got the impression he's never made her eyes flutter and that bothers him because he feels like he needs to be the strong good looking guy so Melly at this point she's pulling the stuff out she just wants to ignore him she she doesn't like him uh, she's trying to ignore him but finally she sees a moment to strike and I just thought it was wicked Um also, this is a good characteristic of a bank robber, being very patient. I thought that was cool. 
Um, so the power shift, there's turning point in the scene. So he's got the power. Oh, you got that piece of crap card. You know, in Mexico, they couldn't sell it because, um, was it Nova means useless or something? I don't know. Um, and then she turns around and this is where we get the, the turning point. This is where she gets the power. He throws the ball. She catches it. She starts winning. She goes, well, I'm kind of surprised you went for the V6 automatic rather than the V8 manual. The V8 so much faster. Oh, but yeah, you can't drive a stick. And he's like, I could drive stick. I love stick. And at this point, she has all the power. The ball's in her court. She's winning. And Moody's trying to fight back. You know, he's digging himself into a corner. I can drive a stick. And it makes him look like an absolute chump. And that is another element where... So we've we've introduced our main character and his brother, who's another main character. And now we introduce the sister, who again is this crafty person. And we get this sort of like hero moment where she's struggling at the beginning. But by the end of that scene, she's walking away a winner. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And there's a lot of cinematography that links that as well. I think Steven Soderbergh's really clever and he's definitely crafted some good storyboards with this. So at the turning point of the scene... We, um, we cut to a different angle. So we get a wide profile of both of them for most of the scene. And it's like at the hip, it's like, like a standoff shot. And then as soon as we get that turning point, it goes to a, like a medium close up more on their faces. And the cut obviously signifies that power change. So he's using editing and the way that he's blocking the camera is a way to say to the audience, look, here's a change. Cause I'm changing the angle of the whole scene. Did you get that? Not not the filmmaking, no. And not the uh, the kind of camera techniques. I didn't pick that up. But I did notice that scene a lot between her and the uh, the husband. But I, yeah. I felt like um, there was a lot of long meandering scenes uh, that could be a little too long um, and kind of boring at times. And I, I did think that was one of them or I kind of was teetering on the edge of that. Yeah. Um, and... It was a good scene because it showed a lot of character and it introduced the sister, but it was also needed for the final heist to work, you know, you know, um, because she needed his car, right? She steals his car and you yeah. need that kind of dialogue that apparently seems mundane about him driving a stick um, because it then pays off at the end because she steals his car. Um, but I do feel like there was a lot of those types of scenes, for example, when uh, the kid's beauty pageant, there's a lot of time spent on that. There's a lot of time setting that up. And there were moments where I'm like, why am I watching these people talk about this kid's beauty pageant uh, so much? And it paid off at the end because that was uh, his alibi, right? That was his, he needed to be there at the end to yeah. have witnesses. So it, it kind of paid off, but I just thought it took so long. Like there was so much set up for that very loose kind of yeah. weak payoff at the end. Because all you had to be is be somewhere public. That's all they needed him to, that's the point they needed him to get to. And they just chose this kind of long convoluted kid in a pageant uh, a competition to get there. Did you not enjoy like where she needed to get? A spray tan, and he's that like, oh, well, "We're not going to the tanning place. We're gonna, we're gonna put it in the car spray." So that was purely character, right? There was nothing. There was no no setup there. That was just showing the type of dad he is and how supportive he was, and um, what type of family they were as well. But uh, yeah, I just felt sometimes they needed scenes. They needed that him talking about the stick. They needed the kid in the beauty pageant 
to pay off at the end and be involved in the final heist. But I just thought they could have got there faster or through different methods. Right. So you felt like the pace was probably just a little bit too slow. Sometimes. Another one as well that I still, to this point, no idea why it's in the film, um, which is uh, when he gets the tetanus shot. So he just comes out of the thing. I, it's a bit of a strange one, isn't yeah. it? It feels like a, a convoluted B story. It's like, oh, we're doing a feature film. We need a love story. So, yeah. yeah what is that scene all about? I have no idea. <laughs> so I, I wrote down in my notes here, uh, tetanus shot, why? <laughs> um, it, it just seems, like you say, they're just crowbarring a love interest for the final scene of the film. Um, she's only in two scenes. Yeah. But that's one of them. And then she's right at the end when they have a little kiss. There's a, the there's, no, there's a third. Be like there's, success. There's a third scene where they're doing the montage of where he sent the money to, right? And she gets right. she gets an envelope full of money with the plasters on. Um because uh, just to show that it was him, and I'm like, "What's the so we needed? What's the point in- we needed like a moral, like he's not stealing all the money for himself. He's, but that's the thing. Gonna give so so I wrote down, was this this a save the cat moment? Right? Is this to show that he's a good guy because he's given some of the money back to um, kind of local, uh, what was it, uh, medical reasons or whatever it was? Um, yeah, is that to show that he's a good guy? I don't know. Again, that just seems like a very convoluted long way of kind of crowbarring a love interest and giving him a save the cat moment. Um, it just—I feel like if you just took that out, took it all out, it's just the same film, and you've just chopped off ten minutes of the film. So what you're saying is she's the Sebastian oh, Stan no, of this I've, film. I've got, I've got some notes on the Sebastian Stan of this film. I think. Oh, we got a couple of Sebastian. Yeah. Stans <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to it if you haven't listened to the film podcast before you might not know what we're talking about we'll get to it we'll explain but do you, it do you agree or do you have any any other thoughts about why they put that in or? oh man I, I liked Channing Tatum's performance enough that seeing these scenes where it's him trying to have a normal conversation with people was enough for me to still be invested in these things now that you talk about it it is it does seem a little bit pointless like, we don't really establish their relationship at all. It's like, they meet each other, then he sends us some money, and then all of a sudden they're together at the end. Um, I don't feel like he needed to be in a relationship to win. And it almost seems a little bit shallow um, to tell us, as the audience, he needs to be in a relationship. Like, you know, single father needs to have someone in order to be just as good as his ex-wife. It was that classic felt like that was a little end, end of a Hollywood film where it was like everyone's paired up for no, even though none of the setup was there in the film. <laughs> <laughs> like Greece. But maybe they all get they all get together. But maybe that's a commentary in itself. Maybe that was intentional to go, you know, this is a bit of a cheesy film uh, and we're, you know, very self-aware film and we're like just throwing people together because that's what films do. Um but I'm I'm I, again, I'm not well, sure. If that, I'm not sure if that was intentional or not. What do I think of it with Hillary Swank? So the la- the last scene, obviously, where everyone's together, and then is it Hillary Swank? Yeah. is at the bar, and we understand she's trying to track these people down. What was that telling the audience? Because I got mixed messages towards the end. Again, I, I don't know. Um, so you know, the scene starts and. Um, they're talking about how what they did and how they got away with it and how the case is now closed and they can go and live in their life, right? Um, and you're like, oh. And they're saying this quite loud <laughs> in the bar. And I suppose the message there is, 
everyone in the bar is going to know what they did. The, the Logan curse is now lifted, right? I think that's kind of the, the implied theme there because they mentioned the Logan yeah. curse throughout the whole film and like, all right, the Logan curse is now lifted. And the, yeah, the camera pans around the film and everyone's paired up for no reason. And then and then it pans around to Hilary Swank, which is the detective. The, is she FBI or is she local? I don't know. She's um, Doesn't matter. <laughs> she's the detective. And she's... She's a fed. That's <laughs> enough we need to know. And so it's either one of two things. Either that's implying that the Logan curse hasn't been lifted and she's going to um, uh, pick up this, uh, what, what's it called? The, pick up the case and um, yeah, figure out what they did. Or it's implying that she's pairing off with Adam Driver and that's his love interest. Um, and to be honest, either way, I don't really care. So I would rather they just didn't have that that last moment and just... yeah. It seemed like we needed the two brothers to have love interest <laughs> at the end. Uh, half of me is thinking it's a cliffhanger where the yeah, the curse hasn't been lifted. But then the other half is kind of like, because it shows a close-up of her. Is it? Does she have a fake arm? Is she, like, are they, like, getting together because they both have fake arms? I didn't. I didn't notice that. So if it, I don't, again, I don't know. whatever there was, the, whatever they were trying to do, I don't think it was clear. Um, it was very, it wasn't very, it was very ambiguous. Um, yeah. All right. I'll give points off for that. <laughs> You're doing well. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about performance then. So, what did you think of the acting in this film? I, I loved the performances. I thought they're really fun, and you can tell everyone's having a good time on set. You know that you can tell that they're all kind of friends. Yeah. Um, one th- and that really that helped me as an audience member enjoy this film even more because you could see that they were having fun yeah. with these wacky characters. My favourite performance was Daniel Craig. I think he was hilarious. I think he was really funny. Um, I think it's the funniest yeah. thing I've seen him do. I, I suppose um, Knives Out, I enjoyed that performance as well, which is kind of similar over the top uh, Southern draw. He needs to hurry up and get Bond out of the way so he can start playing but some other I people. I do feel like he's, he, he's wicked. his shtick... <laughs> Is always I've always found that he takes himself too seriously, you know, as a person and an actor, and that comes across in Bond as well, doesn't it? Um, but in this yeah. in this film, it's just the opposite. You can tell he's just having a good time, and he's just—it's yeah. a holiday <laughs> film for him, isn't yeah. it? A holiday project. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm like you say, I'm excited for him to get Bond. I do like him as Bond, but um, yeah, it, oh, he's my favorite Bond. It, it'd be fun to see him. He's definitely the best. It'll Bond. be fun to see him do other stuff as well, stuff like this, because he's very funny. He's a funny guy, right? Yeah, he was really funny in Knives Out as well. But one, uh, yeah, my note for this is Daniel Craig looks like he's having so much fun playing a cartoon <laughs> character. <laughs> one, so on performances, one performance I really, really did not like, and it really took me out of it every time he was on screen was uh, Family Guy, Seth, Seth Family Guy. Right. Okay. Like this. This guy's, was he called Seth McFarlane? Seth McFarlane. Like, obviously, he's a very talented guy. He's a very smart guy. He's he can do a, a million different voices, um, but the can't do an English but, accent. Yeah, very that's well. That's the thing. The, the, <laughs> the one he decided to do for this film was this awful British accent. Awful. <laughs> and then, like London accent. And then, yeah. as, on top of that, they give him like this. Weird perm, stupid mustache, and a mustache. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but do you not think that's? Do you think that's like really? Because they're all cartoon characters. So in order for him to be even more of a cartoon character within this film, did you not think that this film is like a live action, like Ed Ed Neddy? 
Like, yeah. everything's ridiculous, but that pulled you out, didn't totally it? Totally pulled me out. It felt like a pantomime, yeah, whenever he was on. I'm just like, what's he doing? Like, why is he doing that accent? Yeah. And, um, yeah, I know, like you said, I know this film wasn't meant to be taken as too seriously, but, yeah, it definitely pulled me out of it, that, that performance. I just thought it was bad casting. Right. Bad casting. Or if you have a minute, don't give him that crappy British accent. I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think he was doing a favour? Maybe. It does seem like strange. It seems like he's been placed in specifically because it's him. Yeah. Like he wasn't, he's not, a, he didn't play that role convincingly. I felt like he was playing it as a dame, like a pantomime. Yeah, yeah. Like he was deliberately playing it not great. And then it was the same. Almost like he was the one breaking the fourth wall. It was kind of the same now that you mentioned, like I've just thought of it there with Hilary Swank's character. Like she was like over the top detective kind of really gruff, really gruff yeah super serious and um again i'm like okay i don't i'm not really sure what this tone is now i'm not really uh clear if this is intentional or not um well in terms of performance mood i always just felt that like yeah they're all cartoon characters yeah and it's ridiculous and we're in this ridiculous world i just felt like it was well established so like when Family Guy came on screen i was kind of just like oh we're gonna have a bit of fun with an absolutely daft character yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, fair <laughs> enough. Right, okay, so a little bit of performance. This sort of goes towards a little bit towards direction as well. Um, I really like, so Fish and Sam are the, the other Bang Brothers. I can't say Bang Bros. That's a <laughs> it's an X-rated thing. Um, I don't know why they called them that. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, so Fish and Sam, they're like the two younger brothers of Daniel Craig. I thought that... Them putting the heads together and instantly making a decision was really funny. And the fact that this film isn't, I wouldn't, it's certainly not like an all out comedy. Just not, not in like a, like a sense. It's very deadpan, isn't it? The hangover or something where everything's super ridiculous. Yeah. I thought, I I, I like that sort of humour a little bit more where it's, it's not so slapstick. Um, The funniest, (laughs) the funniest moment in the whole film though, honestly. So Clyde has been sentenced to 90 days and then it's like, officers, take him away. And these two officers come in with handcuffs. And he's obviously, he's got a prosthetic arm and like one officer just turns around to the other one and then they all just sort of shrug like, well, this is awkward. But is what do you think of those moments? In the film? Uh, I think those moments are what made the film for me. Yeah. They kind of, because they just come out of nowhere, don't they? Yeah. Because it's not like they're... Some of the scenes aren't very funny, but they just have those moments in. That's just like, laugh out loud. Like that one in the court, then the one, yeah, where they uh, make that quick decision. But also the one where they're putting that bomb together and like they're just reading this like step by step. <laughs> right? Yeah. And he goes, yeah. what's the next step? Run. And then, oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, this is live action Ed, Ed, and Eddie. That's what it feels like. It feels like a ridiculous cartoon world. I feel like it sticks to that tone throughout the film. Yeah, though. Do you yeah, not? Yeah. Do you not think it? It has that sort of like balance between like a bit of comedy, a bit of action, and a little bit of oh, melodrama between the family. Oh, that moment as well where he the they suck his prosthetic arm into the the machine (laughs) and it's just silence and you can just see his face just drop and uh, yeah that was a good that was a good moment a good piece of acting there yeah (laughs) aye 
Do you, do you think that we're talking about those moments? Because we spoke a bit about performance and in these funny moments. Do you think that those are the elements that maybe would have smoothed over some of the criticisms you have if you weren't watching? You oh, didn't that, have to watch. I mean, hundred percent. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this film. For, I, I didn't. I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it, but just thinking about the story and the plot and um, thinking about it as critically as I have. Um, uh, the, yeah, doing doing it for this podcast has kind of ruined some parts of the experience. But yeah, yeah, if you just want to switch off and watch a funny film, this is perfect. Like it's it's great. It's a great film. So right. So speaking of that, then, do you think that it's the intention of this film is exactly what it needs to be? Because I would argue that Transformers is a perfect film because. He set out to make a film specifically exactly like that. So in my eyes, I would be like, well, Transformers is a perfect movie. Michael Bay did exactly what he wanted. Do you think Steven Soderbergh uh, got the comedy and the drama and just enough of these cartoon characters elements together that this is yeah, think, exactly what he wanted to make? I think so. It's it's two hours. It's quite long for like this sort of uh, tone and style. And comedy films tend to be more closer to 90 minutes, don't they? But um, yeah, yeah, it's a great film if you just want to be entertained. Um, but if you're looking for something a bit more, you know, juicy, and if you want to spend some time thinking about the themes, um, yeah, if you want to, if you want to go and watch Seven, yeah, or The Pianist, <laughs> they're just different types this of films, aren't they? They're just different movies, um, aren't they? It's yeah. probably this is like a re- it's probably a f- maybe a perfect popcorn movie. Yeah. This is the ultimate fun romp in my yeah, eyes. Yeah, I'm not going to be thinking about it too much after it's done, you know, unless I'm doing a podcast on it, but I'm just going to turn it off and, and get on with my life, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about cinematography then. So really going on this this Western idea that I've got, this Wild West feeling. Um, I did, right, so the first time I watched this, I didn't, I wasn't really thinking about the cinematography um, as a conscious thing. But watching it again, it made me realise that there's a lot of very specific types of shots, um, lingering elements and lens choices in this that make it, you could almost do a Logan Lucky-esque film. Um, I think it's really cool and I think it hides it really well. You know, you know, the cinematography of something like soup, like a... Uh, Blade Runner is really on the nose. Yeah. It's like, it just packs so much. Whereas this does it quite invisibly. Um, so wide angle profile shots is this um, film language that he seems to use. So we get lots of wide angles in the film. Static wides during conversations, not a lot of excess coverage and certainly not a lot of cutting in the in the scenes. Maybe that's why the pace wasn't quite there for you because there's a lot of like, we're just going to plonk the camera down and we're just going to watch this happen. Um, but you see during these wide angle uh, profile shots where you see both characters on each side of the frame looking at each other, noses pointed to the side. Um, during the turning points in the scenes, we're finally cut in and we're cut into these more intimate um, moments. And it usually goes like, argue, 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 yes, but what about this? And then we cut to the conversational things as it develops. Um, and I thought that was a good way to link the performance, the cinematography, and the editing to sort of give the audience the feeling that this scene is moving along uh, rather than just what's happening in the scene. Like it uses filmmaking elements to drive that forward. Um, and that language is pretty consistent throughout the whole thing. 
um, Jimmy and Clyde are two main characters in a wide shot. They're always on opposite sides of the screen. Lots of space between them. Then they finally come into an agreement about something and we cut in and we simply bring them together. And I thought that was a, a great way of, it's kind of like filmmaking 101 in terms of cinematography. Not so much like lighting or like, oh, fancy lenses. Do we do it anamorphic or all of that stuff? But more cinematography by direction. So the, the choices in order to tell the story in a certain way. I really enjoyed that. Did you get that when you were watching that? Um, that this has some some style to it or was it mostly ignored when you were watching All I've got on my notes here for cinematography is lovely. So <laughs> I don't... Lovely. lovely. It, was a, yeah, it, was a, it was a good looking film. Um, I didn't have anything... For being like a, just like a comedy movie, yeah. it it does something with with the with the camera movement and the and the shot choices and composition that makes it slightly above you know something that just shoots like a coverage or something maybe like the Hangover or something. Yeah, sometimes I remember some of the shots I remember is quite close. There's not a lot of them, but there's a few close ups on faces, isn't there? I remember one of yeah, Daniel with really wide angle Daniel lenses Craig. as well. Um, I remember one of him. In the in the uh, prison, where I think he leans forward in the prison during the interview, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think that's when he says, "I'm in." You know, I don't. He didn't say that, but <laughs> he says something <laughs> like that. But towards the end of the film, the scene, yeah. yeah. And it's a little bit noticeable. Yeah. Just a little bit noticeable. Yeah. yeah. Um, I got two more bits on cinematography. It's really just, I've, I've decided on this podcast, I'm not going to just talk about my opinion. I'm going to try and break stuff down so people can sort of learn a bit more um the ex-wife argument the first scene where so we see our main character we've had the scene where he's been fired things like that and now he's walking up to this like mansion and it's his ex-wife and she's you know she's got a rosé in her hand and she's wearing her fancy heels um so we first see an argument between jimmy and his ex-wife uh what's his ex-wife called bobby that's <laughs> right main main guy ex-wife um and the camera is actually set up like a cowboy shot. So a cow so you know an over the shoulder, you would frame in a little bit of the head and a little bit of the shoulder. Yeah. So a cowboy shot is essentially an over the shoulder, but instead of framing the shoulder in, you frame the hip in. And usually that would be where a gun is placed. Okay. So it's like low down and it's sort of over the hip. That's what it would be. Um in cowboy films that would be like where they would uh, twinkle the fingers ready to um, and this is their standoff, literally in the film. It's a standoff between, you know, this guy and his ex-wife. And it's about the, the daughter. And they argue about custody of Sadie um, going over the state line. I just thought that was a really cool way of getting this like Western feel of like, we're going to have a standoff between man and ex-wife. Um, and it was definitely a conscious choice. Like you don't, you don't frame that up by accident. I thought that was really cool. There's a lot of like elements in terms of camera choices, that I was like, oh, Steven Soderbergh, you're talking to me, boy. <laughs> and then there's one last thing with cinematography and it's utilising the pan and tilt. And this is something that he actually does in a lot of his films. He, he sort of popularised it with Ocean's Eleven and then there was a load of Ocean's Eleven clones that tried to do it. And he brings it back in this film and it's covering the scene in sort of like two shots connecting them together with a pan tilt or, or a combination and there's one scene that i really like it's the beginning where sam and fish so like the two younger brothers daniel craig's younger brothers 
um, they're at a payphone. You know, I'm at a payphone. <laughs> and um, so he, he rings up Jimmy, the main character, Channing Tatum. Um, and we cut to, J- to Jimmy's house. And the, the shot just stares at this phone on the desk. And he walks in. It like obviously rings. And he answers. And then the camera, because it's, it's like low at the table. It's like table height. It has to tilt really high to get Jimmy's face in. And I thought, well, that was a funky angle. But that's all we need. We need phone and then a massive tilt up to him on the phone talking about it. All we need is prop and the character. No need to get complex. We don't need loads of coverage. Then he hangs up and the shot just continues. We we tilt all the way back down again and we see that the sister, Melly, was was sitting on the sofa listening and she gets really excited that that the cockroaches are pink or something. Something with a cake. Um... We didn't need an establishing shot of the whole house. We've been to the house before. We didn't even need to know who exactly was there until the moment that it happens. We we could have we could have covered that scene with like seven or eight different shots where we see her eating some crisps and the phones there and it we we get this this uh, tracking shot of him coming in. But it's like so efficient. The camera literally is plonked down. We get it on the phone. We're like, we don't need a pedestal up. We just tilt up as much as possible, get this crazy angle, and then just bring it down again in a massive arc over the whole scene. Um, I thought that was really cool. What did you think, kid? I mean, <laughs> I just been talking for ages. No, I, I, I didn't really have any notes on this particular area, so I'm enjoying hearing what you thought about it. I think I was too focused on the story, to be honest. Um, so yeah, I have nothing... Uh, intelligent to add to your uh, your thoughts there <laughs> okay art direction that's the next thing um you go first because I, I got some bits and i'll probably end so what are our key locations in this film we've got um the houses the speedway itself the sp- houses, speedway we've got the, the, we've got the vault um yep and and then a lot of streets, and a lot of streets. shots. Yeah. Where was this? In the mansion. In the mansion. Well, yeah, to start off with, the mansion and kind of juxtaposed with his kind of small living, what was it, like a caravan or something like that? Um, almost. Almost that, like yeah. that. So I like that kind of juxtaposition between, um, yeah, yeah, visually showing a separation between him and his former family. Uh, and that probably maybe intended to show that you know, he's in a bit of a hard place and he needs money and things like that. Um, I like the prison. Again, it, it felt prisony, I guess, because they were all in like a prison outfit. Black and white. But the thing is about those costumes, like that that's like really old school, like chain gang costumes. Whereas like modern... Um, they wear them in like prison padding, uniforms. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. They, they literally placed them in cartoon prison uniforms yeah like they could have easily done orange jumpsuits or um scrubs you know like a prison break look where it's just like a light blue or something but they literally put them in black and white stripes yeah it's a cliche isn't it you put the black and white stripes a kind of uh a thing around the eyes what's it called and um like a sack full of money like that's like the the stereotypical uh criminal <laughs> look yeah yeah <laughs> And that was obviously a conscious choice. It's like, well, we need them to be... There are loads of criminals in the prison. Let's give them the, the cartoon look. 
to it. Yeah. So I like cool. the prison. It didn't seem like a big set. I think they were just using like one big room, weren't they, for the whole time? Uh, I'd, yeah, there wasn't an awful lot because it was like a minimum security yeah. place, wasn't it? And then... What else? Well, cost, costumes are the thing I noticed with Art Direction. Um, I felt like they, they've, they've set up the characters to wear their characteristic. So, like, Jimmy's quite a casual guy. He's a blue-collar type, so he's baseball cap, he wears shorts, he has work boots. That fits his character as the worker. They all look old and worn, and, don't they, as well, as clothes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and in the film, he is sort of like, kind of like the leader and he's the worker, he's the one doing all the, the grafting to get this stuff done. And then Clyde, I notice, is actually dresses a little bit smarter. So he considers situations more than Jimmy, maybe. He's always the one who's arguing about a certain thing. It's, can we do this? He's always questioning it. So they've made him a little bit more white collar, maybe like, you know, he's got a little bit more thought process to it. And then obviously the younger... <laughs> Bang Bros, um, Fish and Sam, the total redneck cartoons, sleeveless denim jackets, cheap tattoos painted all over their arms, things like that. And then, like you said, with um, his ex-wife and her husband, Roy, Roy from the warehouse, they're like the higher class. They dress really nicely. She has a glass of wine in the first scene we see her. Um, and these characters ooze, oh, what are other people going to think about us? And they clearly lack self-esteem and they need to dress that way because they feel like they need to be portrayed um, having more value. Whereas Jimmy is happy being himself and I think that's a good way to, rather than, like, I get the impression that it was all about, I oh, could do with a bit more money, but it was less about the money for himself and more about, oh, well, I want to provide an absolute shed load for my daughter at this point because he seemed kind of content with his own life and how things were going obviously he got sacked but he could easily go get another job he seems like a crafty guy so why do you think but that goes why do you sort of along your lines of the stakes not being high enough yeah why do you think they give them ailments like that other than so why do you think he's only got one arm do you think it was purely just for the kind of comedic effect of when he gets his arm sucked into the pipe or was it to kind of give, I him, when they were give him a it, bit of empathy? The, well, it, it's backstory, first of all, because we understand that he's ex-military um, and he's willing to, you know, put himself in harm's way. Um, it's funny because it means that they can use that as a punchline, a plot yeah. device later on and a punchline, yeah. Don't know. It's why not. It makes it. It just makes the film more interesting, really, doesn't it? I, uh, I really liked um, the bar, the location of the bar, particularly the external shots of the bar. I'm not sure if they were the same inside and out, but the external shots of the bar kind of immediately, uh, you got the idea of who these people were and what type of places they frequented and drank at. Um, just these kind of run, run yeah. down, smoky bars on the side of a road, uh, outside, out yeah. in the middle of nowhere. So I again that very with a guy outside, very character building. Having a having a time. Yeah. I love those bars. <laughs> like what what are they, what do you call them? A, di- dive, a dive bar. bar. Yeah. That's what they call it. Yeah. A dive bar. Where you have to wash you you have to wipe your feet on the way out. <laughs> um. Well, next on the list is visual slash special effects. I mean, there was obviously 
some visual effects and some special effects in the film, but there was nothing uh, I noticed. I, I instantly, whenever you, whenever I see this in a film, you always look at the person's arm, right? So whenever they're, they're missing a limb or something, my yeah. brain always goes, right, how are they doing that? Is it real? Is it like, has he got his arm inside yeah. of a cast or something like that? Or is it like folded like you do in school? Yeah. Do you know when you like, you put like, you put your arms. <laughs> yeah, you put your elbow in at the sleeve <laughs> instead of your hand. Yeah. And um, I like how. Did you notice? Did you see the scene? Well, because I was thinking that, right? And it instantly where I saw him. And then within 30 seconds, he takes his arm off. And I, I, I felt like that was the director going, no, look, he hasn't got an arm. Like, uh, right. rather than we're not. Yeah, we're not cheating here. He's not put an arm through yeah, his thing. We're gonna we're gonna prove we're gonna we're gonna prove something here. We're gonna spin the uh the thing round. Oh look, they are separate. I can wave my hand but, between and it's, my beautiful assistant's legs and a and a top arm. And it works because so there's nothing here, no wires. And it works because as soon as you, you put the arm back on, you're right, all right, I'm I'm done. I believe that he has got an arm there, you know? You convinced. Yeah. 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 Um uh, that's a yeah. That's a cool. And there's no and there's no reason, uh, like plot wise, he didn't have to take his arm off. Then it's just because it just made a cool shot. Just because the guys were being yeah. a bit of a dick to him. But yeah, other than that, I think there was a few explosions, wasn't there? Um, but I couldn't think of any other special visual effects. Can you? Everything just seems fit for purpose. There was nothing yeah. um, that stood out. Not in terms of like. Oh, absolutely, utterly amazing! Everything was embedded into the film. Um, everything was, if the, whatever visual effects they added, were seamless and invisible. <laughs> so nothing detracted me away from the film, which I thought was really good. Do you have anything on editing? So editing, in terms of the length of the film, uh, like I, I said before, I think it's just too long. Like it's two hours. And I think you could easily chop some scenes down and get rid of some characters and it would be the same film. Um, Do you feel like we would lose a little bit of character development? Because there's a lot of character building in those scenes. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. You might, you might uh, not like the characters as much as you do. But I'd get rid of Family Guy. Or at least I'll keep I'd keep the first fam I'd keep the first Family Guy scene, you know, where they kind of they have that location in the bar, and then just get rid of him for the rest of it. You don't need him. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it was slightly too long, and some of the scenes meandered a bit because I'm like, what's the point of this conversation? But yeah, like you say, it's short character, so I'm in two minds. But I do think yeah, ten minutes, fifteen minutes could have been knocked off. Yeah. For me, because it. I like the characters so much and, and it feels like a well-established cartoon world. It Those long meandering scenes were more like a playground. So I I like the fact that they were slightly longer. Okay. Like I, that's as much as I wanted. What did you think of the like, what um, did you think of the, the kind of pace and the editing of the heist itself? You know, like, because, you know, classic heist films, you can't give the audience everything. You have to drip feed them parts of the plan. And then in order for the big reveal to be at the end of like, oh, we're actually doing this and not that and, and all of that. Well, they didn't really, they didn't really say this is what we're going to do. And then we see them do it. They just start doing it. There's no real scenes of them planning all that much. Yeah. Other than maybe some like 3D models that they built with cardboard or something. They just sort of get on with it. And then within scene, within each scene that's happening in continuity, there's always a problem that they need to solve in order to get through. So uh, Clyde lo losing his arm, the um, explosive, 
not going off. Um, the the shutter not opening. The you know the the argument that they had with Family Guy things like that. There was a little bit of heist upon heist, like it was deliberate. Luck. Like, yeah, the shutter. Uh, we revealed that the shutter wasn't because of the belt. It was because he'd set it up or something. You had a magnet there. Did you think the heist beyond the heist was? They just needed to put it in because all heist movies need to heist the audience. The, the problem with heist films is this: it's every single yeah moment like that where something goes wrong, but actually it was meant to go wrong. And yeah. all of those moments, they just seem too like too perfect, too coincident. And like if one of those things didn't happen the way that it was initially planned, the, your whole plan would be would be gone and out the window. And yeah. I know that's how films work, but it's just sometimes they uh, design it in a way. So it feels more believable than it is. For for example, in this one, they had to rely on Family Guy. <laughs> like when Family Guy sees them in the corridor, that wasn't planned, but they, they made it seem like that was all part of the plan, that Family Guy would see them. But he would also have an unreliable witness say that he was, that uh, kind of disprove him to the FBI. Does that make sense? Um. Yeah, I don't know. There's just lots of heist upon heists and the cl the classic cliched. Oh, we need to get these five people together in order to pull off this one thing. And the, you know, the first yeah. half of the film is recruiting. Uh, it's like that Family Guy episode, isn't it? The Rick and Morty episode. Oh, yeah. Mean? Sorry, I'm just thinking about Family Guy. The Rick and Morty episode. <laughs> yeah, there was a, there was a few things that were still just a mistake that they had to. Yeah get through um, but would you have wanted oh we needed like heist in the audience it was a plan all along if you didn't have that element at all I reckon you would have missed it yeah I just I remember like you've been oh we need a more I remember in Ocean's Eleven when they kind of do the big reveal with the montage and I'm just like that satisfied feeling I had there at that point in time um well, Ocean's Eleven spoiled it, didn't it? Because it was perfect. No one else can do that yeah. again without it being. Oh, well, you just copying Ocean's Eleven. Like the whole reveal that they had already robbed. They already what was it? The CCTV footage was their setup. Yeah. They actually made us like a model of it. Yeah. And we thought throughout the film that the model was just them practicing, but really it was because they'd stuck it on the cameras, and they went there. And everything was already robbed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everything was already robbed or we didn't really rob it or uh, I don't know. Yeah. We give all the money back. Yeah. What do you think of scenes where we we end a scene with like, what I noticed with this is we need to get loads of money and rob a place. And it's like, well, what are we going to rob? It's like the ultimate mega speedway. And I know how we're going to steal it. And then it cuts to the next scene and it's showing them how to do it. Do you think that getting the last line in for the for the, the previous scene to continue the next one is too, too cheesy? So, do you think I it think works? it's a little cheesy in places, but like we've said, it's probably intentional, isn't it? It's very self-aware, don't they? At one point, they call it like the Ocean Seven Eleven heist or something like that. Um, Do they? Yeah, it's a little nice little reference to his oh, previous I films. Know, I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> yeah, 
Well, um, one conscious editing choice I, I noticed was um, the use of L and J cuts. So, um, L and J cuts are essentially where the video will cut moments before the audio of the same scene. So, or a J cut is the opposite, where we we get the audio of the next scene before the video cuts. So on a timeline, it would look like an L shape or respectively a J shape. Um, when Clyde rams his car into the petrol station, into the garage, the shot continues and we see him get out the car and he's stepping around and he's a bit shook up and then he goes and gets a packet of crisps and pays for them. Um, but as soon as the car smashes, the audio cuts to the sentencing of Clyde. So we get, what would that be? Is that an L cut or is that a J cut? It doesn't really matter. Um, and it provides us with a lot of information of the next scene without having to see... Like, so we got this cool moment where Adam Driver kept acting and we get this funny moment. But we also need to get into this next scene as quickly as possible. And it, it does that by just giving us the audio of the next scene, the boring crap where it's like, oh, I'm going to... Since you've been, you know, you're a naughty lad, Clyde, bloody, bloody, blah, blah, but since you've got a military history and you were in juvie last time and it's all that crap that we don't need to see, we can just hear it because we want to watch Adam Driver poncing about <laughs> in the garage buying crisps. Yeah, that's a good um, point. I like that. Yeah. That, I mean, that would have made that scene like an extra 30 seconds. There's, a, there's an opposite version of that. So if that's an L cut, the J cut is when. Jimmy picks up, picks up his daughter, Sadie. So Channing Tatum picks up his daughter from the ex-wife and she gives him a list of things to do. And it's like, right, you need to go to the tanning salon. And the image cuts really early and we cut to a, a can of, of tanning spray or something. Um, hang on. Oh, but the audio stays on and it's the conversation between him and his daughter. And it's like, tanning salon, we'll see about that. And then by the time we get to that end of that audio clip, we're like into the next scene. Okay. Um, and these these eight L and J cuts aren't they're not like one or two seconds. It's not like um like a conversation usually has L's and yeah. J cuts throughout the whole thing. But these are like a good ten seconds before the the second editing element, whether it's the audio or the video, meets the cut of the first. And I thought that, that it definitely helped with the pace. We got the information of the next scene early. So that when we jumped into it, we weren't hanging around. That's good. Yeah, I didn't notice that, but that's all yeah. I've gotten. Um, I suppose another technique: the the classic montage at the end, where they kind of revealed where all the money went, kind of sped things up because I thought it was getting a bit slow. Uh, you know, when Hilary Swank comes in, lots of slow scenes, and then suddenly yeah. when he starts digging up the garden, it's like boom, 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 boom. This is what he did. This is how he did it. Um, yeah. So I like I like that bit. Uh, was that so was that voice that was that a voiceover? Of... I can't remember. Was it? How did they reveal all that exposition? I'm not sure. I can't remember. I think it just happened. I think they were just doing it. You just watched them. Do right. it. So you reckon you could take a good 15 minutes out? I of think I could easily do that. Um, I could take just by taking. You maybe leave the scenes alone, but just take a. Take out the woman, interest. <laughs> Take out the nurse or the, the doctor. Yeah, she doesn't need to be in there. And she? I'm going to argue when we... I'm going to do it now, probably. I'm going to take Sebastian Stan out. I think Sebastian Stan is the Sebastian Stan of this film. <gasps> no way. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, all right, well, let's let's quickly get to it then. So uh, sound design, I didn't really notice anything. It sounded perfectly fine. There wasn't anything of note. Do you have anything? No. <laughs> uh, score slash soundtrack, heist music. Heist movies always have the best soundtrack. I like that. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, yeah, it felt heisty. I also like the um, the theme <laughs> heisty, of the song. Yeah, it was heisty. The kind of West Virginia song. I thought that was quite sweet. Kind of um, that song that him and his daughter shared and then it came back at the end. Yeah. That was a nice moment. Um, so yeah. I like that, yeah. So you got that set up and yeah. payoff. That was right at the beginning of the movie. And everyone, I liked yeah. how everyone, because she was, it was set up that she was going to sing Umbrella, wasn't it? Which was a, uh, yeah. And then it had that funny scene at the beginning where it was like what it what it really meant and things like that. And then it turned out she she sang yeah. a sweet song for her dad, and everyone joined in, and it was a nice it was an, it was a nice moment in between all of that kind of chaos. Um. So yeah, I like the soundtrack. Right. Yeah, we we get to the juicy bits then. So. Who was the Sebastian Stan? Right. So as I've said, um, I won't repeat it, but the the kind of love interest, I think you could take her out. But also, I think Sebastian Stan was the Sebastian Stan of this film. And when I saw him come in, I honestly thought, oh, did you pick did you pick this film because of Sebastian Stan? Uh, I didn't. But as soon as I saw the, um, the poster, because Clyde, when he goes into the garage, when he rams through the glass, he rams through... A like like a life size yeah, right, yeah. uh, cardboard cutout of Sebastian Stan, and for a split second, I was like, "Was that Sebastian Stan?" <laughs> and it was. <laughs> so let's talk about yeah, his so story. I think he could be taken out completely. So let's then. talk about who he is. So he's this this race car driver, right? He's like top of his game, um, and um, it does his Family Guy like sponsor him or something? Like he's, uh, yeah. So he he race he races for uh, a team where. Family Guy is the main Yeah, sponsor, so Family Guy is like the money guy. So he owns and he's like a, and, a drink company. And Sebastian stands the talent, isn't he? So Yeah. Uh, and so his storyline, he is forced to drink this bottle of champagne because that's who's sponsoring the race. And Family Guy forces him to drink it before the race, which results in him losing the race. Um, uh, and, and that's the dynamic between him and Family Guy. And then Family Guy spots Adam Driver in the uh, tunnel on the way out of the heist and because they had that location in the bar at the beginning he instantly knows who he is and he can like he's an eyewitness for the police that he was there on that day when he should have been in prison yeah but because uh, because Family Guy and Sebastian Stan don't like because they don't like each other Sebastian Stan says he just happened to say he just happened to lie because they don't like each other he denied those accusations that he saw um, Adam Driver in the tunnel and then that that means that they got away with it because they couldn't then believe that Family Guy saw him so that that's (laughs) as much as you wouldn't like Family Guy you wouldn't lie to the police because it would get you You'll get you get yourself in trouble. But it's just—it's so it, just such that? a convoluted way of um, kind of discrediting his eyewitness. You know, like yeah. <laughs> you could just write in. Well, here's a question. You could then. just write. How would you do it differently? But you could just write in that you didn't about that he didn't see him. Like we don't need we don't need that story at all. Like why do yeah. we need to have them bump into each other at the track? Like if you remove that, that the film's exactly the same. So Sebastian Stan is not needed. Um, right, because they didn't need to heist their way out of it. Because they had Sebastian Stan to just basically say, "No, that didn't happen." Yeah. That's, that's so the whole, that, the whole, the whole, yeah, his, that whole scene, the whole his 
was the Sebastian Stan. His whole character, his whole backstory of being this health nut and, you know, him drinking before the race was all just to get to a point where for him to dislike Family Guy and to disprove the accusation. Yeah. But you could just write that he didn't see him and the, the story's fine. Just Dawn brings uh, Family Guy back into the film after the bar scene. I can't believe Sebastian Stan is the Sebastian Stan. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> He's a pointless character in two films now, at least on the pod. Um, so is there anything else you would do differently then? Uh, no, just those two things. Well, that you've maybe not spoken about. Um, yeah, those two characters. Oh, and recast Family Guy. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about, um, what about right, you? Um, has it aged? I don't know. Um, I think when I watch it again sometime down the line, you're going to be in me here <laughs> saying... Look at all these problems, Richard. I'm gonna be like, shut up, kid. <laughs> it's funny, man. It's a funny film. Um, yeah, some of the plot points you've mentioned, yeah, makes sense now that now that you've said it. Um, question is, has it aged? Is it a fine wine or is it a ribena? A bit of a ribena, this isn't it? Like, it's only like four. Yeah, years it's only old. four years old, and I think that the characters, the, the the cast that are in it, are still top of the game, aren't they? Um, so. It's still it's still a good fun watch, and I don't think it ever won't be. You know, it's a good film. Yeah. yeah. Um, is Matt Damon in this? Uh, no. Nope. Filmmaking <laughs> cliches. Uh, well, losing your job at the beginning is definitely a cliche. Did you pick up on anything else? Well, just the kind of uh, the classic heist cliches of of getting a, a team of people together that have vastly different personalities. Yeah. Um, <laughs> heist and the heist. And heist and the heist. It's always a double twist. Yeah. Um, the, the ex-wife is always a bitch. Yeah. And that kind of montage reveal at the end, that's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? Aye. But... Yeah. Yeah. And... and is this a film that embraces cliches I think it is though. yeah I think you can, can forgive cliches in a film like this yeah it's not taking itself too seriously because cliche is is cartoonish yeah. isn't it and in order to it sort of achieves the tone by making it a little bit yeah. cliche a little bit tropey <laughs> um, is it in the Matrix um, no is it in the Terminator <laughs> um, yes he he gets a he gets a little Terminator arm at the end, doesn't he? He gets a little uh... <laughs> <laughs> little T eight hundred arm. He does. Yeah. He gets it. <laughs> it's in the Terminator. Yeah, get in. Yeah, the arm that they steal and bring. Yeah, is from what's the what's the that's that what's arm. the um, organization called in the Terminator? Micronexus thing. Skynet. Skynet. Yeah, <laughs> that's a Skynet arm. It's a Skynet arm. <laughs> oh, get in. Right, could there be a sequel? I think that... Logan Lucky 2. I think they could, you know, and the characters are good enough to, to bring them back and do another um, criminal adventure. I, I think the whole theme of the Logan curse, you could bring that back. Um, not that it really played much of a, a, a storyline in this one other than you were told there's a curse. But uh, yeah, it's, it's still an ongoing theme, isn't it? But yeah, I think there could be. I'd like to see these characters again, do some other funny stuff. Yeah. I would want to see them again yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, they were not overly utilised in this. No. They could definitely... I would like to see 
bloody Ed and Eddie oh. again. <laughs> they were funny. Off, off on another wacky adventure. I like that guy. One of them called, uh, he's called Jack Quaid. Have you seen, I think you've seen The Boys, right? We've talked about The Boys before. Jack Quaid, yeah. 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 Um, I like him. He's funny. And he, yeah, he was really he good. He is the daughter, he's not the daughter, he's the son of uh, Dennis Quaid and, and Meg Ryan, if you didn't know that. I did know yeah. that, but that's a good fun <laughs> fact <laughs> for the next bit. Um, all right, so overall direction then, the overall vision, the identity of this. It's a bit of a polarizing one because I know you would say it's not a perfect film, but is it perfect in what it wanted to achieve? I think so, yeah, I think so. I think he he knew the style and the tone he was going for, um, and he achieved a, a good film at the end of it. Again, I think it's it's an average film or a better, slightly better than average, but he probably wasn't going for much more than that. He just seems to be having fun. I don't think Steven Soderbergh really cares about, uh, <laughs> you know, he he doesn't seem to be the type of guy that wants to go for the best films in the world. Yeah. This film was certainly never going to be written or directed with an intention of winning an Oscar. They just wanted to make a really fun film. And have they achieved that? There you go then, 10 out of 10. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what did I I give this? You got a 9. Did I give it a 9? Yeah, well, talking about it, I would probably bring it down to an 8. I think because... I'm willing to admit that they that he achieved what he wanted, that I can only praise him for it. But yeah, like you say, there's some plot elements in this and characters you could remove, <laughs> such as Sebastian Stan. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll um. Yeah. I'll, well, what what did you give it? At the I, I give it. Are you, six. Are you keeping? I the give same? it six. Are you, are you I'll, higher, lower? I'll give it six, but I'll I'll add a seven. I'll take it up to seven just because I did have a good time. You know, I just, I've watched films that I would probably class as a six and had an awful time, but like you know, stylistically they were, they were yeah. good. Um, but this one, I had a really good time and it's what, what more can you ask for from a film really? Yeah. Hey, we've, we've come to a, we've come to an agreement. You know what it is? It's because we don't have that dickhead Rob with us. You know what I mean? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to edit this one. <laughs> Oh, uh, uh, that was he gotta, he that was for future. That was for future, Rob. It is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's gonna delete you out of the episode, though. <laughs> I'm sorry, Rob. <laughs> that was a joke. Honestly, I miss you. Um, um if you want to reach us, I forgot to mention this up top. Um, if you want to reach us with your opinions on Logan Lucky, um, you can do so. You can email us at thefilmlook at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at thefilmlook we've got a YouTube channel uh, called The Film Look, where we drop filmmaker knowledge bombs based on short films we make scenes that we we write and direct things like that um, and if you really like what we do here we also have a Patreon where you can give us a little bit of bit of support um, Patreon's the best way to do that other than obviously sharing this podcast with your friends and uh, maybe giving us a little five star review um, we've got a bunch of supporter rewards on there, including a community Discord, which is pretty lively. Everyone's chatting, talking about films. People share their scripts together. Um, bonus filmmaking videos as well. And we even run a one-on-one feedback session. We've got a couple of feedback sessions booked in with people, actually. Um, looking forward to reading their screenplays and um, basically chatting about it, getting them ready to to start shooting. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash the film look for more info. Um, or everything will be 
in the show notes below. Do you have any closing words other than another million apologies? I, would, I was just about to say, I, I, through all of that, I was just um, uh, feeling really bad. I feel really guilty. <laughs> so I just want to close this episode by... I'm going to have to go back and listen to the episodes that I'm not so in. I, See what you've been talking about. I want to close me. this episode by saying Rob is a lovely guy and um, we miss him dearly. And he's just a, he's just a sweet, sweet fella with... Uh, a really nice personality and um, he's not a dickhead at all <laughs> and uh, yeah see you next week <laughs> I've got an idea right, yeah are you going to bring him in uh, <laughs> this will be part of the apology what are you doing <laughs> are you going ser- to serenade him this is for Rob if anyone's listening to this, um, usually we have three people and Rob's not here today. So, um, K-Dog decided to call him a dickhead <laughs> and he's going to apologise. We're going to sing Country Rob. <laughs> Country Rob, take me, take me home <laughs> to the place where I belong. Robbie, Robbie, <laughs> something... Take me home. I'm sorry, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> All right, good way to. Bye, Bye. everyone. Bye.